Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Liza Featherstone, who is a journalist based in New York City. She's a writer for Jacobin Magazine, also a contributing editor to The Nation, where she also writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Miss, and Rolling Stone, among many other outlets. She is the co-author of Students Against Sweatshops, The Making of a Movement, and author of Selling Women Short, The Landmark Battle for Workers' Rights at Walmart. Today, we are talking about her latest book, Divining Desire. Thanks for joining us again. It's a pleasure. All right, let's see if we can knock this thing out today. (laughs) All right, we left off uh, sort of in the first half of the book, talking a little bit about women entering the field of focus groups, but we didn't really touch on this sort of fundamental shift that was taking place in the 70s. Admin and focus groups, marketing research are facing all of this criticism from the left, second wave feminists, um, but also conservatives. Um, And there's this sort of switch to like, we're no longer manipulating the people, but now we're listening to the people. So you can take it from there. Yeah, so so advertising and market research um, generally is a just a real lightning rod for um, for criticism in the in the 60s it, it beginning in the 50s and then really um, intensifying in the 60s and 70s as as there's just so much more um, um, general criticism of of our society under consumer capitalism um, and um, so there's criticism from feminists that um, that advertising objectifies women um, and is um, and engage and perpetuates gender stereotypes. That's um, that becomes um, a new line of criticism um, for the for the industry and a, and a very um, intense one. Um, there's also the um, you know the I, the sort of sense from the left in general, especially the new left, the sort of um, um, anti-capitalist and also kind of hippie left, um, like sees it as a source of, um, you know, a, a sort of, a, 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 a sort of source of propaganda um, alienating people by um, making them think that material, um, you know, materialism and, um, buying stuff is going to make us happy, um, and um, um, and then there's the and there's even some um, conservative criticism, you know, that it's you know leading to a kind of a um, like a, a frivolous lifestyle, like it's encouraging a frivolous lifestyle and um, an over-sexualized consciousness um, among um, among people. Um, so um and and then there's also um, a like broader criticism of you know of capitalism in general that you know it's um it's exploitive um that you know this it's not sustainable environmentally and there's also you know criticism of of corporate behavior we see um um, you know Ralph Nader's book um, on car safety, unsafe at any speed, um, you know becomes a bestseller. You know, I mean these these sorts of um, examinations of um, of the role that corporations play and the indifference um, toward um, human life itself, um, you know, become uh, become really prominent in this period, um, and. Um, 
and market research becomes um, a um, um, like at times a lightning rod for that. It comes under criticism itself, as we've discussed, you know, beginning in the fifties. But it also becomes part of the solution to that problem from corporate America's perspective, because um, because what it has been, what it has done all along, is it has been a place for ordinary people to have a voice and be heard from. And so at, in this period where, um, where people have a lot to say to corporate America, market research um, is, becomes a, a, a tool uh, like in their you know, arsenal to, um, to address it and say, oh, look, we're, we're really listening. You know, we're really listening um, and, you know, and we hear you. Um, so a, a, a really um, a fun example of that that I found was um, from this, this um, ad campaign from the 70s um, that the Ford Motor Company did. And it just seems to be a, a very conscious response to so many of these strands at once. So you've got the feminists on the one hand saying, you know, you don't respect, um, you don't respect us, you don't respect women, and you've got the uh, Ralph Nader saying these people just don't care whether you live or die. And uh, and and this ad campaign was um, this. Um, it's called. Um, we asked them, um, and it, which is um, also just wonderfully encapsulates um, the the sort of plea of corporate America to um, to um, recognize that you know through focus groups and market research we really are listening. We promise. Right. So it's called we asked them, and um, and it it in it it has it features um, all these real life women. Um, to, who have, you know, and many of them have jobs, you know, they're a school teacher, they're, you know, they're not just, you know, some actress being paid to look nice and talk about cars. Um, there um, there are all these different wi uh, women talking about um, their ideas for um to for um for making the cars safer and ford motor company is showing how it implemented each of these ideas you know so these are they're clearly you know clearly these women had these ideas that came up in the focus group um and um and uh, you know as much as pot and ford is creating a, a narrative about how these ideas were incorporated into car safety to make uh, make make cars safer, and it's just one of many examples of sort of um, discursively how the focus group um, could function um, as a way to um, make corporations um, seem like they were being much more um, responsive. Um, amusingly. Um, when um, when that um, campaign was focus group tested, of course the focus groups liked it a lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, they really people really liked that you know, the Ford Motor um, co company seemed to be um, uh, responding. Right, and you mentioned. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting, too, is you, you mentioned throughout the book not just these specific examples, but that this was taking place, the sort of bigger, broader structural 
political economy that you have this recession in the mid 1970s that also right. you know creates more and more distance which is a theme throughout the book that this distance i mean today it seems astronomical but the distance between ordinary people and elites um i think i'm one of those people that i think as a young leftist was like they're all the same they've always been the same then i read uh, chris hedge's book um Death of, the, death of the liberal class, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And, it's something like that. Yeah. yeah, and I remember, and I, I remember reading through that and going, "Oh wow, no, they have changed." That in fact, yeah. that this is, you know, throughout time has become more and more distant. But that this is also taking place in the '70s. That you have this recession. It creates more distance between the elites and ordinary people. Um, that's right. Yeah, and um, and and that's that's absolutely right. And the the focus group is always a, a lens of in in my in my story about it, but also the, I believe this is really true um, that um, it's always a, a lens to um, to look at the relationship um, between um, elites and ordinary people, and um, that relationship is always changing because um, elites change, and the rest of us do too. You know, we we go you know so. Um, I mean, our our mutual friend um, Christian Parenti has written about this period, the seventies, um, and um, and uh, and I, I believe I mentioned it in the book that I mean the um, you know because of um, the um, the recession and the changing um, economic conditions, um, but also the holdover from you know hippie counterculture, which was far more widespread. Than we sometimes understand it. Um, workers are really getting very rebellious on the job in this period. I mean, there are just like wildcat strikes, or just like people getting stoned all day at the plant, you know. And it's like <laughs> really like the elites are kind of like, what are we gonna do about this? Yeah, I mean, this was happening in the uh, military at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of great literature about just the breakdown of the military toward the end of Vietnam where you had like X amount of GIs were doing heroin X amount were like regularly taking psychedelics. Like this was like yeah. fragging their officers, like fragging the officers yeah. walking off the, uh, you know, deserting, you know, absolutely. Yeah. So this is like, so, you know, they, um, it can sound like a conspiracy theory to talk about this stuff, but um, but you know the Trilateral Commission writes its report, um, you know um, that um, which literally contains the line, um, "What are we going to do about the public?" Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, which I think is just such a wonderful line. I mean that they're they're really distressed by all the unrest that they see and um, kind of panicked about how they're going to manage it. Yeah. And this has implications even beyond. I mean, the next chapter you talk about, uh, I love the title, by the way, Entertaining Joe Sixpack is wonderful. <laughs> when that title came up or when that name came up, when did that come up? I You might have mentioned it in the chapter, but was it like, was this Sarah Palin era? Was this like Obama or was it before? Uh, yeah, that? I, I think so. Okay. Um, um, I, that's, um, I, I forget when that phrase emerged, but it's so, um, yeah, it's, it's just so amazingly condescending. Yeah. It is. And, and yeah. I, and I call yeah. some of my friends that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, the point that you make, I mean, you bring up, you use this story of sort of fatal attraction to talk about how much this is, how they've, how it wasn't in fact focus groups that have fucked up the entertainment industry, or if you want to blame like 
bad movies in Hollywood. Like the blame is because there's extreme pressure to produce blockbuster films that the right. focus groups are not to blame for this. And then when something goes wrong, Hollywood elites are like, ah, it was the people like the focus groups fucked up. It wasn't us and the, the, you know, need to make $500 million off of a movie. I found it funny that you brought up fatal attraction because I sort of use that f- film as a, an, an example of like, just how warped Hollywood can turn, I mean, different books, stories, the changes that they make. But not only that, I mean, I was thinking a lot about feminism as I'm reading your book. Um, and it seems to me that like the most, that the real story is like sleeping with the enemy. Like that that's actually, like that's reality. <laughs> like that's yeah, what the fuck totally. would really happen. And that yeah. like anything like Fatal Attraction is like, no, like, no, I don't know any, I any stories like this like I know no, I know a hundred no, stories like sleeping with the enemy but um absolutely in any absolutely. case you can yeah, I'll yeah, let that, you talk about the I'll let you talk about the sort of impact that that this has had uh in Hollywood or the way that they've sort of used this to cover for their own terrible mistakes yeah <laughs> and you're so right sleeping with the enemy is like like um, films like that which which actually there were a lot i mean sleeping with the enemy is a little is later um um but um but in the the 70s um actually there were a lot of um movies that very realistically depicted um like life in america and um, and things get um much more um detached and fantastical like in the eighties and nineties and, um, and, and, um, and downright, um, in, in, in sort of into sort of this downright, um, bourgeois male paranoia, um, which we see in fatal attraction, which yeah. is like, I mean, I'm not a film scholar, but that stuff is nuts, you know? Yeah. Um, and, um, basic instinct. Ba- I was just thinking An- another eighties. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the, the, yeah, the, the um, the lady ha- is um, um, has a an ice pick. Uh, Sharon I mean, Stone, a childhood crush. Right. But yeah, <laughs> right. She was. I was way too that. young to be watching that. By the way, like I was, because right. I'm 36 now, so I don't know when that came out. But I was like, I was like 10 or 11, like watching yeah. that, and I was like. Oh my God. Like I just remember thinking like mom and dad are not going to be pleased if they find out. that I watched. No, uh, no, no. But anyway, I don't mean to keep, I don't mean to keep. No, no, uh, no. Not to, not, to, not to derail, but, um, but, but it was a very, it was a very strange period for movies. And so, yeah, so, so, so it's, it's not unusual for focus groups to play um, a huge, uh, to, to play some role in, 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 um, in shaping movies. And, and that one, um, in particular, the um, the um, the actress um, Glenn Close had a very um, um, l- much later had a lot of um, complaints about the process. She had done a lot of research on the psychology um, of the character um, and um, and on um, what sort of um, what sort of mental disorder she might have had and what would be an authentic um, and just sort of um, realistic um, action for her to take in that situation, and um, and the the where the movie went was just nowhere related to that, um, you know, and just you know wasn't a, even a convincing, um, it wasn't even so it wasn't even a, a convincing trajectory 
for um you know a um a crazy person right. who was crazy in the particular way um and so you know so you know people often you know hollywood people get so um mad about these kinds of things the the focus group ending um and um and there so there's a lot of um you know there's a, a lot of they they fan a lot of cultural flames uh, of flames of cultural discontent around around this around the role that market research plays in movies um but i, I think that um you know the um, i mean the the more that you look into the factors shaping hollywood it's just um it's just so much about um money and profits and the incentives to just make bigger blockbusters and um and the focus groups are just a small part of that process of the dumbing down of you know making movies that suck you know what I mean and it's it's really like capitalism is pretty um terrible for um for culture I mean and um and and the and the focus groups it, it's fascinating how um, much hostility um they um they engender because um i i think it becomes a way um for um for um us to blame each other or us to blame like other um americans like those dumb people you know have you know um just you know their sensibility up their ass and they thought this was a good way for the movie to end um and you know and you know, instead of um, blaming all, sort of all the profit forces that converge um, to make the movie um, stupid, and I looked a little bit at um, gaming culture, which I'm a total outsider to because I don't play video games, but I like I, I looked um, at um, a lot of um, gaming boards on which they were discussing the focus groups and the impact on the on the games, um, and it seemed like a really similar dynamic to the one that moviegoers have, where they were just like like all these dumb people, um, you know, um, and um, and their input um, made this game so bad. You know, had we been in those focus groups we would have been able to um, shape a different outcome but again you know just it's it kind of just becomes a way for um um to um blame each other instead of the 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 people who are really in charge somewhat similar to uh politics i mean you know we we watch the um the people on tv you know after a presidential debate and you know they and they always have the undecided people who are sort of um you know your stories were so real like i when you told the story about because i'm gonna we'll go out of order it makes more sense actually to get into i want to talk about the entrepreneurs striking back the way that you've formulated this i want to talk about the entrepreneurs striking back and then the appalling uh the the sort of I forget what the title of that is, but it's like yeah, we're like appalled with ourselves. The the um because then we could just sort of go back into politics. Yeah. But yeah, I mean when I read some of that in the book, I'm going Jesus. I I mean we've sat there before and watched this and been like, who the fuck are these people? Like where the <laughs> fuck did they get these people from? I mean you're just the whole time you're like, oh God, oh yeah. So anyway, I there's so many moments in the book that I was just like, oh, I've done this before. <laughs> just absolutely. Like, yeah, it absolutely. is. It's like, I feel like part of the book was to make like leftists feel guilty about our 
our uh, elitism sometimes. Oh no, I'm there too. I mean, that's, I mean, the "Who are these appalling people?" comes out of like that. I mean, that was you know my um um my my friend, my sister actually, but I make her into a oh, friend. Okay, okay. Protect the guilty. Um, and the uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, and my and my sister's like. Who are these appalling people? Yeah, <laughs> and I was, I was like, yeah. What? And then, then later, I was like, it's all about that. Well, like that, like that's that, that's our stance toward each our, our, our each other, our, our our fellow citizens, because we just can't help we can't help blaming them. Yeah. No, it's it it resonates on a deep level politically. We were, I mean, we were talking about it like. When you're political, when you're doing political organizing work, actually, I use a different example. When our friend Francisco stopped by on the roof to talk to us the other day, he was like, he was like, why is everybody so, you know, it's this everybody thing where it's like everybody's so dumb or everybody supports Trump or this. It's like this, you start to like just overly simplify everything. And it's like, well, like trying to remind ourselves that only 23 point whatever the fuck percent of like voting age people voted for this guy. Like fifty mm-hmm. percent of people over eighteen, they just don't even bother. And oh, then yeah. when they're polled, like they're not like huge Trump fans. Yeah, it's a and it's a even smaller number now. Yeah, um, I mean we we're not exactly surrounded um, by fascists. No, no, <laughs> like, it's so I mean, different. I mean, we talk yeah. up with this has been coming up so much over the last four months, and even now with the election, you you know you'll hear people. And I understand where they're coming from. And I think that the, like, Trump saying, like, he's going to stay in office no matter what or do whatever. Like, I think mm-hmm. you could read that a million different ways. Um, I'm not as concerned because, like, even the Trump supporters we know, like, there's no one. I'm kind of bumbling through this. But the what I'm trying to say is that the right isn't really organized either. Like, there isn't, right. like, even here in Northwest Indiana, like, we can't, like, go find, like, people will tell us all the time, like, hey, have you tried to organize Trump supporters? And we're like, how the fuck are you going to find them? Like, do you just want to go door by door? Because there's not, like, a local, like, brown shirt group or, like, a local, like, we're the Trump militia and here's where we hang out and we meet every Monday. Like, they don't even organize. They're, like, at home trolling people. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, drinking and yeah. being like, fuck these libtards. Like, <laughs> that's like what's going on like it's not like an organized group of like highly disciplined people with a coherent political ideology anyway i know we're going way off track but so the way that this is uh, so i'm just telling you that as someone living in what is called trump country like like there's hardly anybody in northwest indiana that that will like openly even support this guy anymore right Um, that's fascinating too but the impact it's had, so we're blaming each other. This, the, the chapter I wanted to jump to, because I think it jives with the point you make also about movies and, and video games in the book, is that a lot of times when fans have official input, people really like the fan outcomes of sitcoms. Yeah, or like, pe- like right. the fan outcomes are like, yeah, like the fans have a good pulse on like what should happen here. It reminds right. me of the chapter, The Entrepreneur Strikes Back, because what's his name? Malcolm Gladwell. He sounds like a real fucking prick. I don't even know who he is. 
But anyway, yeah. I like reading him in the book. I'm like, who's this fucking guy? God, like he's somebody who definitely deserves to get slapped. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> I'm glad you hear you say that. A, a friend of mine who I gave the book to in, in a draft form was like, you talk way too much about Lawrence. I'm like, you must not like him. Huh? You hate him. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I mean, I guess it's unseemly, but <laughs> I don't know who he is, and you made like, me hate him. So you did an excellent job yeah. on that. But the the uh, well, what I think the parallel is here is with Apple, though. So I was thinking in the chapter about Hollywood and so on that this the the portion about Apple that there was like this the rejection that like Gladwell represented this in, this portion of the elites that was like we're now going to like look down on ordinary people like they don't know. So it shifts again to like they don't know what the hell they're talking about, and in fact we're going to like tout the fact that we don't pay attention to them that like the entrepreneur is the one who's a genius but in reality you show that with apple that wasn't the case that in fact it was the workers themselves yeah. which is even more interesting than the consumers but anyway right go ahead right yeah so um so there there so there comes to be this um this backlash um you know um, stemming a little bit from the um i mean it it's it, it always finds a, an eager um, audience in the public for the reasons that I've just described. We're like we're always willing to blame each other for um, the problems of, of capitalism, and um, um, and but then it's um, it's you know the um, so in the in the nineties um, and um, early two thousands, the, um, the um, elites really take this um, anti-focus group rhetoric on and um, and really um, r really start um, scapegoating it um, very hard um, and um, and the um, you know that there's there's a number of there, there's a number of flashpoints um, I identify um, among them um, you know the uh, the um, George W Bush uh, George uh, yeah, George W. Bush, the second one. I was like, which Bush was this? <laughs> yeah, but um, so in the um, you know in the you know the second the second Bush um in the um you know two thousand three um you know beginning of the war and there are all these you know popular protests um, against um um the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq and um and uh, and he dismisses the protests saying um saying. I don't govern by focus group, right. you know, which is so so striking because he takes something that um, that kind of everybody thinks is debased, the focus group, um, and uses that to uh, to to characterize any popular and in intervention, you right. know, any um, any kind of input from the people is a focus group, which is um, so which is so interesting, and um, and uh, you know, of course, that that was. Um, that was comical and ridiculous too, because um, of course not true. I mean, the Bush administration did make extensive use of focus groups, even if they didn't want to listen to protesters. Right. You know, um, and um, um, and and there's a lot of um, and conservative politicians, particularly, um, who um, mostly were listening to focus groups quite a bit. Um, but would make a lot of rhetorical hay out of how they weren't, um, and um, and and, um, and there was a certain um, um, 
kind of a masculinity and uh, and you know associated with that like we don't need to listen to anyone we're just going to make the decisions bush says at one point i'm the decider right. um right. and um you know it's the a choice, memories it, the fucking it, memories it, i know it, it's awful <laughs> to flash back on these things it's uh, oh. the, uh, um and um and so the um, you know, entrepreneurs like um, like Steve Jobs um, also make a, a lot of get a lot of media attention for talking about how they don't use focus groups and they don't, you know, the, and um, and St- Steve Jobs um, talks about this a lot. You know, he's, he 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 um, uses this um, this fake quote from Henry Ford that is really popular in the business media. Um, you know, if I asked, you know, that if I had asked the public what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse that, um, you know, he's supposed to have said that about the car that, you know, it, it actually turns out um, that quote is probably um, invented anyway. Right. But, um, um, but, but it's, it, it, it's, it, it becomes this sort of way of, um, you know, they denigrate the focus groups in order to um, exalt um, the, um, the, the power of, um, individual, um, businessmen, you know, um, or, or individual politicians, usually Republicans, um, and, and they're, um, um, and the, um, and, and it's so, um, it's, it's so fascinating because, you know, it's, it's such a, um, it's it's such a bizarrely illiberal worldview that becomes um, so widely quoted throughout the business press. You know that like that. Um, you know, whereas the business press in the fifties is all about you know the you know like market research is great and it shows how much we are listening to people and the consumer is king. And uh, and in this period in the in the um, early in the early aughts the conventional wisdom is the exact opposite that no, the consumer is trash. The public knows nothing, you know, listen to the smart men. Um, and, um, and so, um, so, it, you know, it's quite a, a leap um, and, um, and the, um, and, and quite a, a shift in elite strategy, I would say, um, you know, that, um, that rather than the strategy being to, um, to make it seem like we're all on board and we're all part of this project of um, of making capitalism work, um, the, uh, the 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 project really shifts to shut up. <laughs> you know, yeah. we just we don't want to hear from you, um, which, which is a very uh, different um, elite stance. Um, and um, so I I thought that that um, that that was very interesting. But as you suggest. Um, it's it's not only interesting as a shifting style of domination. Um, it's also interesting be, um, because um, it is not true. Um, I mean, in this case of of, of Steve Jobs, um, it may have been true that they weren't um, consulting the consumer as aggressively, um, but the Apple products were not invented by Steve Jobs's own unique um, brilliance. Um, it was a, um, a management style that flourished 
um, and allowed um, many um, of the engineers who worked for Apple to come up with their own ideas, um, often based on what would they personally like to listen to, like people, you know, and, and they felt like, oh, it would be really cool to be able to listen to music on our phones, right. you know? I mean, and they just like, they were, and, and so if anything, it was, um, it was a more um, organic way of, 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 of like a, a sort of more, um, more radical way of thinking about um, how things could be invented, that it could be through um, a relatively horizontal workplace, um, um, you know, where, um, where the, where the workers are, um, are respected. And, um, you know, actually, I think he was a horrible boss and Steve Jobs is really kind of a dick. Um, but, um, but, um, and there was a lot of pressure and stress on these people, but their ideas were definitely respected and they were encouraged um, to, uh, to be creative um, about them, which is certainly, you know, if we think about what kind of society we would want to see, we would certainly um, want society to function in much more that way. And it is um, far more, actually far more democratic um, in many ways than, uh, than, you know, asking the impersonal consumer what they might like. Right. No, absolutely. And the big shift at the same time, the, if, from you mentioned from the 50s to the early 2000s and sort of the corporate world and that shift in in the way that uh researchers and marketers and so forth were were looking at the public but then the shift in politics is to in it's like fuck bridging the gap we're just going to start selling people policies that they absolutely hate so now how do we sell people a bunch of shit that they really don't like yeah. It's like, oh, great. You know, yeah. This makes so sense. This, <laughs> so, so, this is an amazing shift um, that uh, um, where um, um, you see in the, um, you see in the 90s, especially as um, with Gingrich and the contract, um, contract. I know that we used to joke and call it contract on America. And so sometimes I think that that's, <laughs> ah, that's really good. what it was, but, but it, it yeah. was actually, contract, I think it was contract with America <laughs> um, and, you know, and the sort of, um, sort of ascendance of, um, of, 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 of very, um, very serious right wing policy um, in, in this period. Um, and, um, and, and also with um, the ascendance of, of, ver- of a much further right-wing Democratic Party in, in Bill Clinton. Um, and, um, and so both of, but both of these um, political tendencies are using focus groups quite um, a lot. Um, but what's, um, what, it, what is um, um, interesting is that um, they really um, shift toward, um, they, they really, they are really shifting toward policy that nobody especially wants. And so they have, you know, so policies that are really in, in no one's interests other than a few elites. So you see um, um, the uh, Republicans pushing um, much lighter taxation for the very rich. Um, and, um, and so, um, so, you know, out of their focus groups, um, grow these um, these terms like death tax for the estate right. tax, 
that the estate, I mean, the estate taxes um, is, it's really in almost everyone's interest to tax inherited wealth very heavily. Like, like most people don't have hardly any to speak of, right. you know, so, so, so to tax that and put it um, into um, public goods that benefit everyone is, is very, um, um, would be a very popular um, policy, is a very popular policy whenever people understand it clearly. Um, so, so terms like the death tax, which makes it sound really mean, you know, oh my God, someone's already dead and now you're going to tax them. It's like insult to injury, like sounds awful, right? You know, so, so, um, so, so, so you see the, the focus group um, used um, more and more to, um, for, um, um, to test um, unpopular policies and figure out how they can make them um, how they can make them more popular. And similarly, I, I, I'd, I, I, I argue similarly that, um, you know, a lot of the products of the 50s, like early household products um, are, um, you know, I mean, maybe people didn't really need them. And there was a, a creation of, of kind of um, false needs. Um, but, um, but, you know, a lot of, you know, basic household appliances um, did make, um, you know, women's work around the house um, somewhat easier, you know, and, you know, do and have, you know, somewhat improved all of our quality of life, you know, if we're lucky enough to, you know, not be homeless and have some of these things, you know, um, so, um, so, and, and whereas, uh, I mean, like the vast majority of products that are being advertised to us now, oh, you know, geez. we have all these basic things are entirely unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. So like, so, so you could really, you can really kind of see, I mean, a parallel in a way between, um, you know, that, that, that the, um, the purpose, um, the purpose of as the purpose of elites has changed the purpose of market research has changed you know to, um, you know and it's and it's it it has um really pivoted to um selling us on um policies that um we really don't want and products that we probably don't need let's go straight to today then and i'll make let me say this so for people who are watching or listening if you want to get the story about coca-cola the new coca-cola which You'll find funny, Liza. I brought it up to my mom the other day on the phone, and she's like, "Oh, I remember that." She's like, "Yeah, it wasn't that bad." And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah." I was like, "Yeah." That uh, apparently that's what most most people thought. But she also mentioned she was like, "Oh no, people did. There were people who lost their shit." And I was like, "Really?" Oh, yeah. So you remember that too? So anyway, yeah. I thought you'd find that interesting because I was like, "I love it." I, I asked her, I and she's it. like, "Yeah, it wasn't that. It wasn't that bad." I was like, <laughs> um, and I'll leave the chapter about, so if you're watching or listening to this, you need to get the damn book, buy it. Mm -hmm. I know that everybody's broke as shit right now, but it's like two packs of cigarettes or like a trip to Wendy's and that's well worth and it. If so I can be vulgar, it looks really pretty. It is. It's like one of the it coolest. Really Hell yeah. Who designed this? What, what? Who designed the uh, front, Liza? Oh, a, um, a, a wonderful, um, a wonderful designer um, named Andy Dark. Okay, cool. Um, who does a lot of our covers, uh, or, or the or books covers. Um. They're some of the best ones. 
speaking of good marketing, I'm a sucker for or books. So you call it or books. I call it OR books. Okay. So or books. I think that's actually correct. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I get, I get some shit from OR books just because I look on their catalog and I'm like, look at that cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll leave the professional respondent chapter and the chapter on uh, the new Coca-Cola that came out uh, for people who can read the book or please read the book and check it out. And so we'll leave kind of a couple of surprises in there. But I did want to touch on before we uh, go, we talked a little bit about who are these appalling people. <laughs> um, and, and the point that you're making with this it, one of them, at least, I don't want to speak for you, but one of them is that simply listening or simply having a voice is not enough, that we need real political power. Why? I mean, I really appreciate the way that you end this because when Occupy took place, this was, um, shit, what, 2012. So, you know, this was like towards my late 20s. I had been home from the Marine Corps from, you know, at 22, I got home, joined the anti-war movement, was like in that first four or five years of getting involved you might find this hilarious and in hindsight, I find it embarrassing, but you know, I dropped out of college uh, when Occupy was going on because I'm like, Oh, it's happening. I'm like, it's, it's happening. Oh, like yeah. the shit's going no. down. Like I don't have time to go yeah. to class and all this shit. And I just remember my professors being like, please finish. Like I was in my last year. Yeah. I still haven't finished, but I was in my last year of school and I was like, ah, fuck it. I'm like the revolution's coming. Like I can't be yeah. sitting here worrying about grades. Um, but totally understandable. God, the 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 criticism, though, in hindsight, I think is so right on. I mean, not even it's 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 loving in solidarity criticism. It's like we yeah. want these movements I mean, to I, succeed. Yeah. Like, so how do we make them more powerful? How do we make them more effective? Like, simply having a voice isn't enough. Like, we do need like a big political program that brings massive amounts of people who don't self-identify as leftists into the mix. There's a whole bunch of things I'm sure that we probably agree on, but I'm interested, really interested. So you'll have to read the book, those of you listening or watching, to get that portion about Occupy. But what I am interested in is this sort of conclusion, like where the hell are we today? We've got Trump and Biden. It's like 2016, but worse because people don't like anybody again, and they even like Trump worse. I mean, I don't know. Um but the an interesting point you make that jives with the interview that we just did with Michael Hart about um, him and Tony Negri's latest book, Assembly. And he's there's like a big portion in there about uh, data mining and like the mm -hmm. social reproduction of capitalism. You yeah. mentioned this as like, we're all in the day-to-day -day focus group now. Like we're yeah. all in focus groups. We're yeah. all members of focus groups and like it's day in and day out. So I guess two part question. One is, what does that look like today with data mining and us being on our phones all day and social media? And then the other side of that, and we can wait, is just kind of where are we at today? Like, what does a focus group mean when we're getting even worse politicians than what we want? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I'll let you go. Yeah, so um, the, uh, yeah, the, the uh, we are, um, I mean, even though sort of, sort of the, the focus group itself is, um, is, you know, it isn't going anywhere and is going to be around, um, I think, for as long as um, for as long as we have an unequal society and elites who are out of touch um, with with the rest of the people. Um, but um, but, you know, the 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 focus group itself in this in its strict definition, um, you know, isn't isn't maybe quite as important as it used to be. However, we are, um, as you suggest, 
um, we're all in it all the time now because every time we go on social media and we give our opinion about things or we say where we're shopping at the moment, you know, I mean, you know, we, um, or, or we uh, post a selfie, we are giving, um, we are giving um, marketers and, um, and corporations more information about ourselves and about our opinions. Um, and we're giving them to um, political consultants who mine all that stuff as well. Um, so, um, so, so we are just, well, we are just constantly in a focus group. And so, I mean, that, and, and, you know, it's, it's sort of curious to observe um, on one level, um, you know, at least with a traditional focus group, you're getting paid for your opinions and you know, what you're, you know, you you know what information you're offering up, and uh, and you may be uh, more in control of that. Um, what's, um, but what's um, maybe even more fascinating to me is that um, on a similar level, we um, we take pleasure in it and can get stuck in it and can mistake it um, for um, for some kind of meaningful input or some sort of meaningful influence um, or engagement um, when, um, w when in fact, um, we are just um, giving voice, we are just um, engaging in um, what Russell Jacoby um, called endless talk. Um, like, and, um, and, you know, it is very um, easy to get caught up in that. Um, and it's very easy for um, for for um, for social movements to get caught up in that. I mean, Occupy was um, was you know sort of at the um, you know you know somewhat early days in terms of social media having as much of a hegemony over our daily lives as it does now. Yeah. But um, but it but it certainly um, it certainly was um, was influenced by that culture of consultation that every everybody has to talk all the time and that there is a political act in being heard itself um, um, and you know and that was very um it was very, it was very prominent in in all the symbolism around occupy like the people's mic you know i mean and um and there um um and so so yeah i think i i think i think we we need to be we need to be very um, mindful of the ways in which um, we can end up, um, we can end up back in the focus group um, of all the time, even when we think we're engaging in something more radical. Do you see that I've, it seems to me that there's still a struggle within movements that we still have like some of that left over, but that I think one of the great things that I've seen or experienced was first in 2016 with Bernie. I think yeah. this brought things back around to like, no, we need programs and like we need to change the material conditions of people's lives. Like simply giving them a voice on the weekend with a bullhorn isn't yeah. going to change their rent or yeah. their ability to send their kids to childcare or their education. Like, so yeah. that I thought has been nice. And it, and it seems um, there was a group of us that went down to Ferguson in 2015, a group of activists from Gary, Indiana and other cities throughout Northwest Indiana. And when we got down there, it was like a, a more intense version 
to some degree of Occupy, where people were out on Fluorescent Ave in, in Ferguson. And the immediate uh, demand, of course, was more clear because it was like, we want something to happen with the police. Like the police specifically, yeah. this is an issue. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there was a lot of like, I was watching like Occupy methods in a different context. And I was yeah. like, oh, wow, like, look at this. Like, it's more intense and more visceral because these people are like poor and working class black folks from fluorescent Ferguson, Missouri, which is different than a lot of the people I met in the Occupy movement. Um, actually, uh, your partner, Doug, brings this up in his book. One, it's probably my favorite portion of my turn. Um, and that is when the Black Lives Matter activists made their way backstage to talk with uh, Hillary Clinton. And it was mm -hmm. like they were saying all of these things, but they were never saying, like, these are our demands. Like, this is exactly yeah. what the fuck we want. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we're moving in that direction. Do you see that? Like, do you see us sort of edging more in that direction, but that we're not quite there yet? I do. I think there's been a real shift. Like, I and I actually think that, the yeah, the, the, the kinds of, um, the, yeah, the, the kind of, the, the kind of political exhaustion that we saw, um, you know, um, in um, in Occupy, I think, is really shifting over into something um, else. I mean, although you know, as you you know, as as you see, you can still see it, um, but um, but it's um, but um, I think this um, this most this most recent uprising um, around the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor killings. Um, I think has been um, has has been far um, far different, um, um, far more um, um, far far more focused on delivering results for the people. Um, I mean, and we see like that already. Like some school systems and particular schools have been, um, you know, being have been. Um, getting um, police officers out of the schools. There have been, uh, you know, there, there have been some serious demands to defund the police coming before city governments. Um, you know, that the, there's, the, there's a, like, the, there's a very, um, you know, there's, there's a very uh, serious focus on, um, on power and demands which were, you know, which which were um, so fuzzy in this kind of giving voice way in the Occupy moment, and are so and is is so much more, um, I think, in focus right now. Um, and I think also, um, you know, I think you you're right to mention the Bernie movement. You know, I think while um w while that's in some ways like you know different people and you know with a different um, with maybe a, a like a somewhat different theory of how change happens, um, the 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 focus on specific demands and specific um, political changes we would like to see, I think, is really similar. I think Bernie really um, Bernie and the um, the um, organizing around him, I think, really helped to um, to bring that into our, our political life. I mean, and now, I mean. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a little bit partisan. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and like, and in in New York, we just um, we we just got five socialists into state government. Yeah. You know, and by 
you know, by and mostly by talking about housing issues and affo affordable um, housing. And, you know, people are, you know, getting evicted because it's a pandemic and a recession. And, um, and you know, we've, you know, we've been trying to stop that, you know, and you know, trying to like, trying to like talk um, seriously about, um, about how to um, make things much, um, um, much more um, workable for working class people. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it's, it's very, uh, I, th I think we are in a really different kind of political moment right now, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, some, I, I think it's, it's easy for, you know, for some kinds of some, sometimes for serious people to be like, Oh, you know, abolition of police, like, what are you talking about? And, you know, and it's like, um, but, um, but I, I think that, that um, behind the rhetoric, you can also see a lot of, very concrete demands that people are organizing around. I, it was heartbreaking both times around being on the left in places like Northwest Indiana, Southwest Michigan, Southeastern Ohio. I think one of the frustrating things is that we see a lot of these debates taking place in like on the coast, usually, you know, that like mm -hmm. a lot of the left, the, the institutional sort of established left exists on yeah. the coast. Yeah, um, yeah. The media entities, it's the organizations. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, we would see these debates, wild debates about Bernie, like, both from the liberal press, from, like, say, the MSNBCs of the world, but also from, like, left press and, like, the debates that would happen around, like, the Bernie campaign. And, like, we were also very aware of the limitations of the campaign, of policies we would have liked to have seen better, like, U.S. foreign policy, different things, like, there were yeah. things, of course, like we were sophisticated enough to notice those things, but just this like hammering him on crazy stuff, like he didn't say this at the debate. It was so, it was so sad for those of us living in a place like Northwest Indiana, where you feel you already feel in a place like Indiana, where you have very little electoral influence at all. Like it yeah. just doesn't matter. You're not a swing state. You yeah. don't have outside of Indianapolis a major metropolitan area that's in. Like nobody cares. So it's like you're always watching these things. You're organizing and doing what you can, knowing that it's really going to be on people in this state, this state, or here, here to like make it happen. And yeah. it was just heartbreaking because both times around, it's totally anecdotal, but like we knew both times that like this time, I don't know, now with the pandemic, who knows. But last time we were pretty fucking convinced that like if Bernie would have been the nominee and he won Indiana, Right. We're and whereas Clinton beat Obama in Indiana in the in the oh uh, seven oh eight primary, and mm -hmm. we were just like it was just heartbreaking. So then the second yeah. time around, it was yeah. just like, oh god, like it was like that the conversation had changed at a certain level in like the professional class of people who are having this talk about Bernie, but that all these working class people I knew were still like we fucking love Bernie and like, he's got to win. Like, this is our guy. Like, this is our last chance. And then like flipping something else on. And it would be like this really petty thing about like, yeah, but Bernie looked like he kind of spoke over this woman or something. And I was just oh. like, Oh no. I was like, they're like how much that misses the kind of people we live around in this Rust Belt area. I, I yeah. won't go on any further, but I'll kind of like let you finish with, 
I don't want to broaden it out too much. So let's kind of focus just with like the political electoral sort of social movements uh, position that we're in today, because yes, we've got the pandemic and climate. I mean, if we add all of this, we'll both be drinking by the end of this. So <laughs> let's just focus for, and to finish up, like, what do you make of that? Cause you, I know you guys live in, in New York. Um, what do you make of that kind of like division on the left? And I don't want to overstate it. Like, cause we have friends on the coast and now with the media and the mm -hmm. ability to communicate. It's not like you really live in a different world, but in a lot of ways you do live in a different yeah. world. Yeah. And so it's like, what do you make of that? How are you sort of processing just the political moment that we're in right now? Yeah. Um, well, I think, um, I mean, you know, the, I mean, it's in so many ways, um, I mean, Trump's ascendance, um, did mark like Bernie's ascendance, Trump's ascendance kind of did mark a um, a break with the kind of political culture I describe in my book. Like it did, it did mark kind of a break with that sort of consultant class, like packaged, very multiply tested. Um, you know, tell people exactly what what we think they want to hear. Um, type of politics, and I think, um, I think on the right, um, that really um, Trump um, really resonated partly for that reason, and on the left, Bernie absolutely resonated for that reason. Um, you know, Bernie um, didn't um, didn't use focus groups in his campaign. A lot of politicians say they don't, um, but the um, but the um, but. I, I did speak to people um, very inside the Bernie campaign and they were like, they were like, no, like, like he really disliked that very strongly. And, um, and, you know, he just, he wanted to talk about the same thing socialists have been talking about for like a hundred years, more than a hundred years, right? <laughs> like how to make life better for working class people. <laughs> like, like that's, you can't test that. I mean, it, I mean, it's arguably been tested and often worked out really well and often been defeated by um, the capitalist class, right? I mean, that's the tension. It's not so much about, are you going to find the exact right soundbite, you know? Um, and, um, and then on Trump's end, um, you know, the, the sort of sense that he was delivering um, something that was a break from what the consultants want you to hear um, did, did resonate kind of similarly with a completely different um, group of people. Um, and so, you know, um, even though, um, you know, Trump's, um, Trump's message and sort and persona is extremely um, consumer driven, you know, like he will test like certain lines at his rallies right. and see like how much do people cheer for that so like people so lock her up about hillary clinton people really liked that and he know? openly so, talks about it yeah he's like they I like it like they like it you see they like it it's like so it's yeah <laughs> and my ratings my ratings are good like he, he talks about himself all the time as yeah. if he is consumer product right. like my ratings are great uh, you know and or, or right now why are my ratings so much worse than anthony fauci's like but it's like it's it's just like he is like you know why like is a fucking fauci? walking yelp review 
he is like why is Anthony Fauci a better consumer product than me right now like he's just like like, that's like a lot of his conversation um and um and so uh, I mean I think um you know we're I I mean I, I think that you know we're gonna see um, yet again, so 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 part of Trump's appeal was that he was a break from that, but in the end, he just is that. You know, he just is he just is a, a yet another um, um, you know politician who is a consumer product, um, and um, and I think because of material the material situation that we're in with the recession and the pandemic, um, the um, the sort of complete bill of goods that this particular consumer product is is laid bare, I think, and I, I think um, I think people are um, really pretty uh, tired of him. Um, I mean, and um, and you know, I, I am sometimes told by um, by friends who live in more in Trump popular areas that um, that you know, I'm being overly optimistic. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it does, I mean, it, it does seem like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of polling data in a lot of places and people are doing so terribly. Um, and, um, none of it, it, it looks particularly good for this incumbent. I think that, um, um, I mean, you know, even if even if focus groups and marketing have reduced all politics to being kind of um, an act and a performance in the way that I describe in my book, um, I think um, I think Trump's um, it's particularly blatant in his case and in, and that his particular act um, may have run its course. Do you think that there could be a pushback in so far as the response could be like one of the things I've been thinking about is, do you think that the, like the industry can only reinvent itself so many times. And then like, it seems like with most things it then just starts to bring back like retro, like what's the, like what did we used to say to the people in the seventies? Like, let's go back to minute. We're listening, not manipulate. Like, like I wonder if after Trump that there could be like this pushback and now the people aren't going to demand this, but how the elites could try and like morph, like, it seemed to me that the perfect focus group candidate was Pete Buttigieg, who comes yeah, from totally. our neck of the woods and who is absolutely fucking hated by all kinds of people throughout the state, but who's also yeah. loved by like a certain sect of like liberals who watch like the West Wing. I don't know where these fucking people come from. Like they watch yeah. the West Wing, whatever they're doing all the time, but it's like so weird. They would be like, he's a, they would say it almost like Trump, but from the liberal way, they'd be like, he's a veteran and he's gay and he's a road scholar and he, like they would just go down the yeah. list i'm like oh yeah. so like he has all the check anyway i just yeah. hope here's my my last question for you are the pete Buttigieg's dead forever in, in national politics or do you think that like there's going to be a resurgence of like let's get some of these like really well crafted i've been like struggling with that since all of this has happened like could we ever go back to an obama or like today like the obama and Buttigieg's of the world it just seems like they could get on tv and like 80 percent of people would just be like yeah whatever like i just don't buy any of this shit anymore that's the sense i get i just wonder if that's the same sense you get 
you're right to zero in on Pete Buttigieg. He really, um, he really was like the perfect um, sequel to Hillary in in being that that really um, that 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 totally um, um, focused group candidate. I mean. I mean, he even had worked for McKinsey. Like he was like, he, he was, he was the culture of consultation. Like, you know, and I mean, and, and you're right with like ticking all the boxes that would like make certain liberal elites really happy with all of his credentials. I, I think that um some of the most like hate mail I've gotten um, was, was I wrote a column kind of making fun of him and oh. people were so upset. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's like he, he was very unpopular votes wise, but there was a, a lot of um, passion for him among certain um, uh, on certain liberal centrist sectors. So, I mean, sure, they might try again. Um, I mean, I noticed that um, um, the Biden campaign um, doesn't have that feel right now. Right. I mean, like it, it's pretty, um, I mean, and it might be, there might be something about the, the specific moment that we're in that really strips things down to basics, uh, you know, where, you know, he's just in his basement, like kind of rightly calling out what Trump is doing and not doing. And it's pretty, um, there's, it feels very um, interesting, like an interestingly low artifice moment for the national Democrats in a way that we haven't seen in a while. So, um, I mean, I guess it, in some ways this, um, um, this moment may, um, you know, just be from because of the extent of the suffering um, in the country from sickness and um, economic hardship. Um, that he, you know, obviously, I think Bernie would have been better, but um, but a relatively um, difficult to market candidate. Um, may indeed be the best bet for beating Trump right now. Yeah, no, just keep him in the, I just hope they keep him in the basement. (laughs) Whatever they got to give him to keep him, you know, as, you know, seemingly somewhat vibrant. I don't, I mean, whatever. I, I just want him to stay in the basement so we can just win, have a different conversation about how we're going to combat neoliberalism. We've been through this with Obama. We've got movements, I think, who've been, like we talked about, movements are more sophisticated now. Biden yep. wouldn't get the same kind of honeymoon that Obama would get. I mean, the day o- Biden takes office, I would. I mean, I know people who are like ready to go. Like they're like, no, we yeah. gotta keep this guy, hold him accountable. Way different than what oh. I remember in two thousand eight, or I think yeah. maybe what we would have gotten with Clinton, where you kind of would have had this. She's the first female president, like, That's and great. she would have endured a bunch of crazy sexism. So then you would have had to play that game, like with Obama, where you're like exactly. defending but then criticize. Anyway, yeah. Thank you so much, Liza. Your book, the book is Divining Desire. I had a lot of fun reading it. Sergio read it as well. He loved it. So, oh, great. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate your time. Yeah. And we'll talk to you. Have. Well, let's talk after the election. Yeah. We'll absolutely. do an episode where I we just it. drink wine. That sounds good too. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, Liza. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. You too. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. 
If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.